This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. This week, we are rebroadcasting our interview with Vijay Prasad, originally aired in February of 2021. We hope you enjoy this special encore episode. This is a canary in the coal mine, not of social systems that are not working and so on. It's a canary in the coal mine about feeling, about the compassion, sense of compassion in a country. Vijay Prashad is the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, chief editor at Left Word Books, and chief correspondent for Globetrotter. His most recent book is Washington Bullets, just out from Monthly Review Press, with a preface by Evo Morales Aime. Well, Vijay, thank you so much for coming on to For the Wild. Great. It's great to be with you, and I just love the name of this podcast, For the Wild. It's very resonant of, you know, so much about the way we live in the world, where, you know, well, the wild, where is it now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think about that a lot as I'm in the world and what I stand for. And uh, thank you for picking up on that. So Vijay, as a journalist and commentator, I'd like to start our conversation in recognition of how the corporate media is manipulating us today. Certainly the U.S. media has always ideologically censored that which critiques the state. But what I'm really noticing now is the ways in which right-winged media and left-wing media are both pushing the narrative that the country is in peril because of the other side. And it seems to me that we're being fed a great contradiction where if neither end of the spectrum is happy and both are blaming one another, we're left to wonder what is actually happening. Specifically, I'm thinking about how many of us have become captivated by the sensationalized nature of hate and violence, and whether or not you think we're becoming deeply addicted to this type of media. If so, how does this prevent us from having nuanced conversations and reaching out to one another? And how does this continue to serve the ruling class? It's a great way to begin. For this, I think you have to plumb more than just the media. You have to go deeper into the kind of cultural stasis uh, that exists, not only in the United States, but in a number of advanced capitalist countries, you know, uh, in Western Europe, maybe even in, in countries like Brazil and India. You have to go deeper into a kind of cultural malaise which has set in. The way I see it is about maybe 40, 50 years ago, as a consequence of you know, changes in the way goods are produced rather than have big factories inside one country, inside a territory, 
the new technological developments allowed you know firms to be broken up and you create what's known as the global commodity chain you create disarticulated production a car factory isn't one big factory you make you know 50 60 100 components of the car in 100 factories you know which are based in 20 countries and the goods are moved back and forth and then they're assembled in one place what this did was it enabled the people who would have invested money in a factory in say detroit in it enabled them to actually not invest much in the world see when you have a big factory you have to invest a lot of money into that factory you know let's say millions of dollars if you broken it up into 20 different factories the investment in each factory is lessened because these factories or these manufacturing plants are in mexico or in you know malaysia or in indonesia wherever they are they often subcontracted so somebody in malaysia has to raise the funds much less than you know starting a big car factory they have to raise the funds they invest the money and so the auto manufacturer doesn't actually have to invest a lot of money overseas you you see this actually quite dramatically with apple apple doesn't make iPhones iPhones are made by Foxconn you know which is a Taiwanese company based in Shenzhen China Apple doesn't make anything they just design brands they develop some technology and so on and they patent it um, but they don't invest in China that's a Taiwanese company that does that investment so these firms were able to first not invest a lot of money around the world to do manufacturing at the same time they collected huge amounts of rent on the goods that they sold this money uh, wasn't going towards taxation because the big companies were basically buying out the political system and they bought out the media and they sold the story that uh, low taxation is good for the whole country for everybody well they didn't pay tax uh, they corrupted the political system in general also the media i mean look who owns the media now oh well washington post who's the owner of the washington post i wonder you know and so on it's it's no longer a family that owns it that's committed to the media it's big business that owns these things if you look at american broadcast networks they're owned by arms dealers you know whether it's um, nbc or whoever they are all owned by companies that manufacture weapons um so you have uh, this situation where they stop paying taxes essentially what we at our institute called a long term tax strike uh, they go on strike they just don't pay taxes um they use the enormous wealth they have to go into tax havens or they you know buy media outlets and so on and start to produce a version of reality they influence the culture and at the same time municipalities and so on are starved for funds um and they start privatizing and really you know eroding the basis of social life i mean it's a perfect storm of to some extent worsened job prospects for people because a lot of manufacturing goes global precarious conditions in the service economy for a lot of people a media that's basically pretending that it tells you a universal or truthful story when in fact it often just represents the viewpoints of the very rich you have a government that basically succumbs to the very rich in the presidential election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump 14 billion dollars was spent on that election it's an incredible amount of money um you know in an election i mean it's in a democratic process it, it's insane 
um, the culture gets corroded over these 40 years. You know, you, you, we have more and more people feeling precarious about their prospects. They are listening to quite toxic things in the media. And nobody, I mean, you know, Ayana, I mean this, nobody, none of the major political forces seems to have a project for the people that resonates in a way that is genuine and sincere. Instead, what you get is political projects that just appear insincere at best and hateful at worst. In other words, insincere, where you know politicians come and tell you just retrain for the next generation jobs. You're a 50-year-old person who's just lost a job. It's not easy to retrain. That's an insincere thing to say to somebody. And on the other side, you get this horrible, toxic stuff about, well, you've lost your job, blame it on an immigrant, and most likely on a body that's colored slightly different than yours. The range of political projects we have in most of the advanced countries now are therefore between insincerity and hate. And my God, that should make everybody a little sick. Yeah, absolutely. Um... In one of Tri-Continental's newsletters from this year, you write, quote, the idea of social bonds or even of society is so compelling in our time. It is getting harder and harder to experience society in a civil manner. Political discourse seems to have emerged from the sewers, and a general compassion for suffering seems to have evaporated as the neo-fascists propagate the hard steel of toxic machismo. This is not merely a problem of the political class. It is a problem that should be associated with the erosion of state and social institutions that would otherwise make individual lives richer, end quote. And yeah, this idea dovetails with what we've been talking about, but also offers a reality check for many that the disappearance of dignified discourse cannot solely be blamed on individual failures but is a byproduct of the gradual and calculated divestments from our social and state institutions. So before we go on to discuss the shortcomings of the left in the West, I wonder if you can begin by talking about how this moment in the United States culturally is deeply connected to the privatization of life, the starving of economies of care, and the bolstering of war industries. There's so much to say here again, Ayana, and this is something I, I feel desperately moved by because, you know, as a consequence of the lockdown and this pandemic, uh, we estimate that hunger rates have gone up dramatically. And I don't know, maybe half the world's population um, struggles with hunger. And there's something just obscene that about our world that we can do so many incredible things. You and I are talking to each other through a computer it's incredible, Ayana. You are you are in Portland, Oregon. We're just chatting as if you're sitting in the same room as me. Your voice is very clear. Um, we can do all these amazing things. You know, we could put our cameras on if we'd like and see each other. It's incredible. And yet, just five minutes from where I am, somebody will be hungry. A young person can't study properly. Their brains are not developing because their nutritional rates are down. Uh, stay with the United States, uh, roughly 567,000 people struggle with homelessness. You know, half a million people struggle with homelessness in this extraordinarily rich country. This is a canary in the coal mine, not of social systems that are not working in, and so on. It's a canary in the coal mine about feeling, about the compassion, sense of compassion in a country. I mean, 
uh, how does a how does a country claim to be a civilization you know um, if you just have no way no project to address the fact that half a million people struggle with homelessness and that with increasing numbers of people struggle with hunger i mean how do you go on with your own life you know uh, there's something wrong with that when a country doesn't have that as its first priority you know the principal priority in an election campaign should be uh, we're going to just not have people be homeless uh, it should be we're just not going to have people be hungry we we need a uh, nutritious food for people uh, and and it's not a question of creating giant ugly uh, you know nature destroying factory farms uh, let's be creative in thinking of ways to you know uh, grow nutritious food near where people live decentralize uh, you know uh, food regimes and so on let's have that conversation and let's be serious about it let's not say this is some marginal thing for hippies and and you know people on the side is ridiculous attitude this should be at the center why isn't a mainstream political party putting at its heart the question of homelessness and hunger and so on you know and and they don't and for me what that says is that's the canary that's an indictment of a culture it it's nothing to do with this party or that party you know the squad um uh, you know alexander ocasio cortez ayana presley ilan omar and rashida tlaib have put together these seven bills and others with them uh, have put together seven bills to directly address the question of you know homelessness or houselessness as you see fit to say they are very pragmatic and good steps that they are asking for is nothing utopian about it you know uh, but it's a direct challenge to the banks to people with money to property owners and so on and it's the same with hunger i mean we know that there's enough food produced in the world and you know i have my critiques of how food is produced but let's leave that for a moment there's enough food produced in the world and i often you know think i often think about this that you know there's a place there's a warehouse of food and then there's hungry people what what prevents the hungry people from getting the food from the warehouse well what prevents the hungry people from eating that food is they don't have money and if you don't have money then you are condemned to starvation there's something just vulgar about the fact that we have people without homes people without food people without health people without access to education and what prevents them from getting these things which we have is the lack of money Now, this is what the capitalist system has done it has eroded the sense of morality in in a culture where people in a in a society just get inured they come to terms with this they see homeless people on the street they just turn their face and walk by they see hungry people they just don't know what to do they feel they feel assaulted by the presence of the hungry person there on the street it's as if the hungry person is hurting them by just being there you know instead of that taking that hurt that you feel when you see somebody hungry and saying i need to construct a political project i need to be involved in something to just end this you know to not allow this and again uh, this in your sense of of a uh, break where people just don't feel like the hungry the homeless the people without medical care it, the sense that they are not part of me they are alien to me you know we are alienated from them that predates the pandemic i mean that's been a long time in motion and you know i think that there is really something quite significant about trying to create a political project that in a way 
breaks the alienation of human beings from each other and breaks the alienation of human beings from nature. Um, you know, it's, it's the same sort of uh, detachment. Uh, I am detached from other people, especially those who are struggling. Uh, I don't want to deal with them. I don't want to see them. We'll, we'll move them away. We'll, we'll evict them and remove them. And I'm also detached from nature. Uh, I don't want to deal with the vagaries of nature, the sense of nature. I just want to give you an example. In Cuba, every year, as you know, there are hurricanes. And the hurricane tears through the island as it tears through other islands. It's a decentralized society. So in every village or town, there is a committee to defend the revolution. And, and among in their committee, there's often electricians. When the storm is coming, they leave their homes, they go and they take down the power lines. They just dismantle it, they remove it, because they know that the lines will otherwise snap. So they preemptively uh, put people without power, then the storm blows right through, then they go and put the power line back up. In other words, they're planning for a certain eventuality, and then they re remedy it. In these countries, like let's say the United States, example, Puerto Rico, nothing is done. And then the storm comes in, knocks down the power line, and a population is completely disorganized. You know, they're not uh, able to do these things. These skills haven't been produced. So then now you have to wait for the electricians to come from the mainland or somewhere else to put up the power again. And, and then you go weeks and weeks without power. I mean, the, this a, it's an example of two different models. You got the Cuban model where they put people before profits, you know, where, they, where people are organized, they're trained, they work in community to deal with adversity, to deal with challenges. You have the other side where people basically are alienated from each other. They don't know, they don't have these skills. You have to pay money to get these skills and so on. And then you get these disasters. And really COVID has shown us that. Um, you know, 29,000 Cuban medical students went door to door and tested all 11 million Cubans to see if they had COVID-19. In the United States, most people, and I, I would hazard almost like to say everybody, nobody has seen anybody from the government come to their door, knock on the door and say, can I test you? It just is not happening. And yet it happened in a poor country like Cuba. It's a different attitude to human beings. Um, that model says people come before profit. In this very rich society of the United States, there's no doubt that profit always comes before people and profit always comes before nature. vocalized that so-called leftists in the United States have continuously failed to capture the power of community organizing and instead 
settling for liberal identities. And there's just so much to ask, but I think listeners would like to know as a precursor why you think it is that we have remained so limited in our ability to pursue social and economic transformation. Why do we need to rectify or what do we need to rectify in order to ensure that future generations and the current one do not remain stymied in their efforts to build a movement to address labor exploitation, global austerity measures, and climate chaos? You know, I mean, Ayana, let's take two incidents, recent incidents. One is the killing of uh, George Floyd and before him, Eric Garner. Why was Eric Garner killed? Eric Garner was killed because the police officers saw a black man in the streets of New York selling loose cigarettes. That's what they alleged, that he was selling loose cigarettes. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. Why was George Floyd killed? Allegedly, because this black man passed a counterfeit $20 bill. They alleged that he passed a counterfeit $20 bill. In both cases, these were men. If indeed it is true that Eric Garner was selling loose cigarettes and George Floyd was trying to pass a $20 bill, if this is indeed true, we have an example of two black men who are attempting in a very, very challenging economy, challenging uh, economic situation to get by. I mean, to take care of their families. You know, it's, it's a, these are economic crimes in a way, if indeed they are true. One, selling loose cigarettes. It's a crime against the excise department. And then passing a counterfeit bill. These are, these are crimes uh, but they're not crimes. Um, m many years ago, Marx wrote something really important. He, he said that, you know, um, peasants used to go into the forests in Germany and they would collect fallen wood for firewood. You know, when a branch fell on the ground, they would go into a forest, collect the branch, bring it, it was firewood. And when the uh, government in these parts of Germany, it was not yet Germany, but in these parts of, of what would become Germany, Silesia, etc., uh, governments passed a law saying this is private property, you can't come and collect firewood. And so the police would ride into these forests and they would beat peasants who were coming to collect firewood, uh, as was their customary practice, and in some cases even killed people. And Marx wrote with great feeling, he said, the peasants understand the punishment. The punishment they are facing is they are getting arrested, they are getting beaten, and in some extreme cases they are killed. They understand the punishment. What they don't understand is the crime. What's the crime in coming and collecting firewood? You know, they are collecting firewood in a customary way for warmth. What's the crime? They don't understand the crime. They don't understand that there is a crime here. Well, it's a crime against private property. In the same way, in a society where there are large numbers of people who are without a home, who are struggling because of lack of proper income to feed their families, where there's no government support for this or minimal anemic government support. Um, people are trying to get by. And this is not seen as a crime because you're trying to feed your family. You know, you're doing just trying to get by. I mean, imagine that. And then you get killed. The punishment is easy to understand. The crime is not clear. Why is that a crime? I'm trying to get by. Meanwhile, big corporate uh, banker or somebody steals hundreds of millions of dollars and they don't get killed. Um, in fact, they sometimes don't even get punished, but we're getting killed for this. We can see the crime, uh, the punishment. We don't see the crime. So what's happened because of this lack of an understanding of class in the United States is the punishment is what is seen there. In other words, 
when we say black lives matter we say black lives matter meaning black lives matter that means that police killing must stop that police killing must stop in other words the punishment must stop but what about the so called crime what when you say black lives matter you you surely don't just mean that the killing must stop surely you mean that the precious lives of human beings must have access to food must have access to housing must have access to education healthcare broad range of services and so on surely it means that whole preciousness of life not just that oh you should be allowed to live what's the point of living if i can't live with dignity you know is the issue so in that sense you know uh, there is no project that's articulated particularly in the democratic party uh, which addresses the que- broader question of life you know again it's not enough to say we have to go and check the police and so on because it's not just about the police it's about the whole system is wretched people don't have the ability to feed themselves they don't have the ability to take care of their children they don't have the ability you know to have their health monitored on a regular basis public services have faced total attrition that kind of broad bold project needs to be articulated you know you need something like that and it's out of a bold project like that that you have to risk creating a majority you know a majority as we say is not found it has to be made you can't find a majority of people to back you you have to make a majority you have to make a majority around a program that unifies people and people will be unified by programs such as everybody agrees that feeding people is paramount people must have a full dignity of their precious lives and so that's what i think you know i think that what's happened with identity politics and so on is that we've ended up focusing on the punishment uh, we've forgotten that we need to attack the idea that certain things are crimes there is no crime in trying to survive you know survival is heroic um, and we need to find a way for us mutually to survive without having to hurt other people in other words theft and so on there are ways we have to look at that as not a crime but as survival and make survival not something that requires a person to surrender their dignity you know to steal from others and so on but survival must be something you can do with dignity i think it's from there that you build a majority mhm mhm wow thank you for that analysis well i'd like to transition our conversation to explore how countries have responded to covid-19 because our media in the states has certainly been fairly limited and biased in terms of what information is disseminated around covid responses tricontinental institute published a study titled Corona Shock and Socialism which pointed out that there is a quote marked difference in the management of the pandemic by countries with bourgeoisie governments and countries with socialist governments the latter has a science based public sector public action and internationalist attitude which has meant that the areas of the world governed by socialists have experienced less of a catastrophe than the countries of the bourgeoisie order end quote now this shouldn't come as a surprise but i do wonder if you can speak to some of the most glaring differences between socialist and bourgeoisie governments and what this implies for future crisis or what this implies for future crises and perhaps 
what climate catastrophe responses will look like under socialist governments? Well, the, the last question is very difficult, and, and I hope we can get there. But there's something quite, I don't like to use the word ironic, by the way, because um, that song ruined the word ironic. I, I understand that it's often a misunderstood word, but but there is something quite odd about how people assume that, let's say, China is authoritarian and the United States is democratic. That's the basic Western framework. When the pandemic was finally uh, you know, understood in China by about the 20th of January of this year, 2020. Uh, in other words, by the time it was clear by, to medical experts that there was human-to-human -human transmission, and when the government in Hubei province shut down Wuhan city and they put really emergency measures in, built a big hospital and so on, that's what the government did. That was what the state did. But suddenly, underneath that, you saw a whole different set of activities begin. Um, so just to give you an example, Chinese society, uh, not the state, is highly organized. People are organized in all kinds of associations, whether it's neighborhood associations, you know, professional associations, and so on. And what you saw in Wuhan, in Wuhan City is that neighborhood associations kicked in, and so did the Communist Party. So what, what did they do? Well, in every neighborhood, the neighborhood associations started to do temperature checks of people who live in the neighborhood. You didn't need uh, high expertise. They were quickly trained. You had to go with masks and with gloves and go and take temperatures of people. If there are spikes in temperature, immediately, you know, medical experts must come, test them, and so on. They can be isolated. They did contact tracing, not through the government, but through um, these decentralized neighborhood committees. Secondly, these neighborhood committees went, made sure, did surveys of, they already had information, but did surveys of neighborhoods who are the elderly? Where do they live? Do they need medicines? Do they need food delivered? And so on. Um, so this is the kind of way in which society started to take care of itself. You know, remember I said, we have this vision, China authoritarian state, um, and therefore no society. Everybody's dominated by the state. State does everything. It's not true. There, the neighborhood associations took care of a lot of the basic functions during the lockdown. And Wuhan and Hubei province were able to beat the pandemic. It's, it's quite amazing, that story of the city and the province um, both. In the place like the United States, uh, it's a really good comparison because, you see, you can, you can say, look, I'm free, but you're also thoroughly disorganized. Um, what did you not see in the United States? You saw people just waiting for the government to do things. Even trade unions didn't come out there and feed people. Um, you didn't see, uh, you know, the NGOs. I mean, what's happened in a way is you've commodified public action in the West, in the, in the capitalist countries. But public action has become the province of non-governmental organizations that get grants and they have professionals running them and so on. You don't have masses of people organized into neighborhood committees and so on. You just don't have that kind of broad public action. Uh, you don't have the habit for it. So because you don't have the habit for it, what you did see is in some small localities, you saw decent people, sometimes organized in some left groups, conduct mutual aid, you know, try to raise uh, funds to go and buy groceries, deliver it to people who couldn't afford, and so on. So there were small instances of mutual aid conducted by really sensitive, decent people, but it wasn't scaled up. You know, we didn't see trade unions participate in Kerala, for instance, which is a, a state in India governed by the, the left front, communist government. Um, 
their trade unions came they built sinks next to bus stations so when people got off buses they would wash their hands the trade unions didn't wait for the government to come and build the sinks they just built the sinks youth organizations in public opened kitchens they would cook you know basic food in public under tents and anybody could come and take food and go home uh, this was to ensure that people were being fed during the pandemic um schools public schools said whatever lunch you get children at school uh, we will we would like to have it delivered to your home so student organizations from colleges said we volunteer to pick up the food from the school and deliver it to people's homes i mean this is public action you know ayana this this is the a habit that develops in these in these societies uh, they haven't attacked trade unions they haven't attacked the organization of students and so on you just don't see this in the west where people live much more atomized lives um you know there is a greater sense that the culture promotes individualism you need to get by don't work collaboratively or cooperatively and the cooperative spirit has eroded deeply in these societies it's, it's not like the united states didn't have this at one time you know let's go back to um, the readings of 19th century fiction you know where you see or, or i guess even the history books where a community would come together to raise somebody's barn you know their the barn needed to be raised the whole community would provide their labor nobody asked to be paid they just did it together as a community because they knew they relied on each other that's mutual aid uh, you you don't need uh, you know anarchism to teach you about mutual aid mutual aid is a basic common human decent thing to do but that decency has eroded because of individualism because rather than call your neighbors and say listen can you people please come and help me move my stove you call up somebody a handyman or whatever to come and do things like that and that culture of commodifying all social relations it doesn't prepare you for a pandemic and how to respond to the pandemic in the end in the places like the united states you wait for the state to act and otherwise you are paralyzed in your home in in these kind of countries in country where you've essentially commodified so many social relations you know where when you need help from for something you try to either hire somebody to do it for you uh, you know by paying them directly or you use your credit card or whatever it is but this idea of mutual community support is deeply eroded in 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 the system and it has its impact at the time of a pandemic <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean you just brought up so many important points about our mutual aid being eroded and i feel that and you've been working to outline what a post covid-19 agenda needs to look like for parts of the world who have been long held captive by global austerity measures and i'd like to explore how the pandemic is projected to affect the world in the long term and what strategies and policies need to be centered but before i ask about the 16 point agenda i wonder if you can remind listeners about the extent of global debt servitude and just the amount of external debt countries have been forced to bear while trillions of dollars sit in tax havens and billionaires offer you know paltry philanthropic donations i mean this is extraordinary like you know it it should be a slogan i mean i would like to make a t-shirt ayana which says no philanthropy only taxation 
look, the problem with philanthropy is they give money and then they expect you to genuflect in front of them, name buildings after them, praise them to the skies. I mean, this is medieval, you know. Um, this is how kings and noble people said, look, I am giving you something and then you had to make, you know, to fall on the ground before them. What's the difference? You know, the donor comes. Oh my God, the donor is coming tomorrow. Everybody's smarten up and, you know, you're like, hello, no, you know, I mean, what? This is medieval. The attitude towards philanthropy is positively medieval. I don't want philanthropy. Pay your taxes fair and square and then let's have a democratic uh, you know, uh, discussion of how to utilize that money, not allow one rich person to define the agenda you know, of a society. And when, when you have somebody like Bezos, you know, $700 billion plus, you know, that they're sitting on, um, you know, they have more money than the, G, the wealth of countries. You know, they can move enormous agendas by their whim. That's what I mean by it being medieval. I mean, wh what gives one person the right to move a major social agenda, you know, whether good or bad, you know, I'm not judging it. It's just the, the structure is wrong. You know, we should have democratic control over our social wealth, not allow whim to uh, define it. Well, you know, we know that right now um, the situation with debt is just obscene. You know, it's literally obscene. Um, you know, the best estimates show us that there is about $11 trillion in external debt um, in the uh, developing world. And the wealthy bondholders, they just don't want to give these countries a break. I mean, right now, if you're smart and we live in a smart world, we'd say, oh, wait a minute, let's just forgive all the debt, you know, this $11 trillion. I mean, after all, after all, there's $32 trillion sitting in tax havens. And that's, that's just the number that we were able to find, you know, $32 trillion. And I, I, you know, we went in and looked at this $32 trillion is more than the total value of gold that has ever been brought up from under the earth. Uh, all the known gold reserves are less than $32 trillion. So we've got $32 trillion sitting in tax havens. Let's use some of that money, which is sitting idle, to essentially forgive the debt. These countries, for instance, if you take an example, Ethiopia, Ethiopia doesn't need aid. It just needs complete debt cancellation. If you cancel the debt to Ethiopia, they have enough resources in their society to drive an agenda. The reason these countries have to keep coming with the begging bowl is because their resources are essentially sapped by this vacuum cleaner of debt servicing, which is endless and perpetual. It's a perpetual debt machine. You know, countries have to keep servicing the debt. You know, I said $11 trillion is owed this year. Sorry, is currently owed as external debt. The servicing on that debt this year, um, about two months ago, was about $3.9 trillion. You know, so just about 40% or 37% of, of the total principal is owed as interest. I mean, that's how miserable the situation is.
You've long called for the need to push the debate about the environmental crisis to not only include more nuance and complexity, but to also acknowledge labor and land struggles and to address the question of deprivation. And I've heard you share sentiments that point out what is the point of a climate strike that speaks of an uninhabitable earth when people on this earth presently cannot eat, which is something you were just referring to. And so this question is open-ended, but I wonder if you could speak to what agricultural workers could teach us about reorganizing the system and how does an extended movement actually translate into a stronger movement? You see, right now we have in place like India, we have increasing and long-term and what looks to be permanent agrarian distress. You know, agriculture has been commercialized. Uh, You know, big firms dominate the landscape, uh, determine the outcome. Uh, They are growing things essentially for markets all over the world. um, And they're growing at massive scale. In order to grow at massive scale, they use just poisonous things that are ruining the soil, um, you know, uh, that is both insecticide, fertilizer, uh, they use seeds that are, you know, God knows what seeds. They they basically plow enormous landscapes, you know, and with no interest in, in, in the integrity of the soil or anything. I mean, it's basically treating, as we say, treating the field like a factory and hoping that the attrition of soil, the soil's uh, depletion and so on can be uh, reversed by using uh, intensive chemicals and so on, and clever seeds, uh, and, and even sometimes in some cases, um, you know, computerization in, in the field itself. So this is the great hope. And what this has meant is it's completely taken the power away from the cultivators. And also it has thrown a lot of people off work because you've mechanized. Uh, and you know, in a place like India, 70% or so people in the countryside, it has created enormous agrarian distress and small farmers have found it very hard to survive. So in, uh, for a long period, suicide rates among farmers were very high. In recent period, agricultural workers and farmers in India have been uh, leading these very large marches particularly in the states of Maharashtra, Madhya Pradesh, and Rajasthan. Uh, These marches are very important because it shows that the leadership in trying to transform uh, rural areas is coming from the agricultural workers, the small farmers, and so on. Uh, You can't do this from policy to farm. It has to be from worker to policy. Uh, There is no other way, you know, because you have to build mass support for some of these ideas. And this is a long-term rebuilding project because around the world, uh, farm worker organizing, farm worker strength has been greatly depleted, um, you know, in the face of giant corporations coming in with the full support of governments and basically eroding the capacity of agricultural workers and small farm owners, you know, to to live with dignity. I mean, that's what they've eroded. So, you know, we can talk as much as we want about agroecology, organic farming, uh, good stewardship of the land and all that. All of that stuff is abstractions, Ayana. All of it is abstractions because it's not a question of having the right ideas. You know, Uh, you can have the right ideas. You can say, oh, look, you know, you shouldn't use so much uh, fertilizer. Don't use so much this. Some scientists will come in and say, no, the optimum is to use only so much chemicals in the land or don't grow three Uh, cycles, leave one fallow, you know, okay, that's all fine. But 
these are abstractions. Uh, they have to be picked up and made alive by people, by people's movements and so on. You know, you, you can't save the world by building a small organic experimental farm somewhere that proves that small experimental farms are correct. You need hundreds of millions of people who work the land to be gripped by the idea that we need to have a different way of doing agriculture. And that's why I want to emphasize the importance of um, these agricultural workers' movements, farm workers' movements, these big marches being held in India. Because in the marches, they are also articulating and debating their agenda. And in that is certainly an agenda about letting the cultivator set the course for what agriculture should look like, listen to the cultivators and so on. And I think this is not just happening in India, in Brazil, for instance, the landless workers' movement, uh, they have experimented, built cooperatives, worked on the construction of, um, you know, of what they call agroecological production and so on. And that's entirely driven by formerly landless farmers and workers who now live in these collective settlements where they are experimenting with new forms of not agriculture for boutique consumption, you know, rich for the rich and so on, but agroecological food for, for themselves, for the communities around them and so on. So I say that the beginning of the transformation uh, doesn't come from, you know, uh, a book somebody has written somewhere about, um, you know, the, let's do agriculture like this. It comes from these experiments and struggles of peasants, farm workers, who are literally, literally with their fingers in the dirt, trying to understand how to draw food from the earth without destroying it. And I think we need to actually take the lead from them. I loved how you spoke to that, and especially the part where, you know, it's not just about good ideas. It's about the people on the ground. And I've been so disenchanted with just the folks who have the mic and had the power and how they try to, yeah, push their armchair philosophical ideas onto those who are actually the ones working with the land. And um, I think that's just such a powerful point. So yeah, thank you for that. And now Vijay, you've been very vocal about the recent coup in Bolivia and its relationship to lithium mining as over 50% of the world's lithium resides amidst Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. So can you talk a bit about the United States' role in interfering with this election in order to gain fuller access to lithium? And if you think more and more coups will ensue in the coming decades as corporate miners seek to propel, quote, clean energy forward? Yeah, so, you know, I, I mean, I think the idea of the Green New Deal sounds great. And who's going to disagree with that? You know, we, we do want to transition away from, um, from fossil fuel energy. Of course, we want to transition from fossil fuel energy. But what are we transitioning to? You know, we're transitioning to energy that is derived from the sun, solar. We're looking to uh, wind. Uh, we're looking to maybe tidal energy, you know, different forms of energy from the earth, uh, from the, the sun, as I said. Uh, but of course, these forms of energy are erratic. Uh, solar energy is not available at night. You need energy at night. Therefore, you need to somehow capture the energy. In order to capture energy, whether it's any of these non-fossil um, or what we call renewable energy, to capture these, you need batteries. And thus far, the most efficient batteries we have use cobalt, 
use lithium and other such um, you know minerals and so on uh, but cobalt and lithium are two important ones well where where do you get cobalt from cobalt comes from the tailing mines of copper and the largest amount of cobalt comes out of the congo the democratic republic of the congo where some companies with hideous records like glencore domiciled in switzerland um th these companies are the ones that essentially by outsourcing the gathering of uh, cobalt from the tailing mines make a ton of money you know ton of money so the people who are mining this you know families including children are paid almost nothing and these companies make a ton of money so in congo you don't need to do a coup because basically these corporations have enormous control of, of parts of the country already then with lithium there's big lithium production in australia but it's not enough the real scaled up green transition takes place you're going to need a lot more um lithium than is currently being mined out of australia you know there's lithium available in cornwall in england but let me tell you i don't think they're going to be mining in cornwall this kind of dirty mining it's always in somebody else's backyard so the big the big big uh, dump of lithium is in that abc triangle argentina bolivia and chile you know and in these countries there is considerable uh, uh, lithium uh, evo morales government when he was in power 14 years improved the conditions of his people immensely he insisted that the government mining company would be in charge of the sale of the lithium or going into joint ventures that you cannot privatize the mines um you know and they also started making a deal uh, which would allow them to process the lithium and make batteries in um bolivia government run factory in fact they also mass produced a small car which evo morales was the first to drive off the lot in bolivia they were interested not just in selling raw materials but in going from lithium all the way out to electric cars with the, their own lithium batteries in it and so on and then the coup happens because you know this is unacceptable because who actually should control the lithium not the bolivian people and their government no certainly not it has to be controlled by big multinational corporations and that's the scandal you're asking will there be more coups in the future well of course there will be because it this seems not to end and these coups are getting more and more sophisticated as time goes by because the apparatus to make you believe it's not a coup is quite sophisticated i mean even people sensitive people people who lean toward the left um after this coup in bolivia they spent weeks saying it's not a coup morales should not have run again i mean who are you to say who should or who shouldn't run again you know i mean this this is something that can be settled in the ballot box in bolivia uh, you know somebody sitting in vermont uh, shouldn't have the license to dictate to other parts of the world what should or shouldn't happen you're entitled to your opinion but in this case your opinion is not merely an opinion you're being weaponized by the cia by the us state department if you come out there and join the chatter saying well you know he's he's been there too long you're just legitimizing what they are doing by force on the ground and i find that to be quite shameful i mean people need to really introspect next time there's a coup and as i said there will be a coup somewhere hopefully not in bolivia but somewhere people need to really think about what they are saying and in whose interest they are saying what you know uh, look you may not like the way somebody is governing that doesn't give you the right to allow your government to overthrow them 
I want to go back to Tricontinental and in the ruins of the present, it's written, quote, the culture of commodities and the idea of people as consumers has desecrated the idea of the human. Bolivian socialists have looked deeply into their own traditions and elaborated a vocabulary to talk about human character of a human society that is not subsumed by capitalist social norms. David Choke Iwanka, the executive secretary of the Bolivian Alliance of the Peoples of Our Americas, speaks of Kapaknyan, the path of the good life, with the need to create not consumers and owners, but Iamba, a person without an owner. Being a person without an owner is, as Choki Wanka says, the future, the path of people who look for the good life. Such efforts to revive the idea of the human and to revive ideas of the need to tend to the creation of human community requires a great deal of effort, end quote. And as we come to a close, I wonder if I can ask you to speak about the world, the mass movements, and lives being lived outside of the West, remind you about the authentic agency that still exists, and a sense of satisfaction that isn't sought through consumerism. Well, b- before I answer that, I would just like to say that you quoted from our first document, and you quoted within that from David Chokihuanka. Um, David has just been elected the vice president of Bolivia. Um, He was the vice presidential candidate with Luis Arce. And I'm very uh, pleased that he is the vice president because uh, what the sentiment that you read out from our first document is something that I deeply believe in. You know, when he articulates a view that a person without an owner, you know, that's the future. Um, you know, that, that, that's what a good life will be. We want everybody to feel like they don't have an owner. And whether it's a tangible, real owner, another person, or it's us being owned by money, by, you know, by mortgages, by these sorts of attachments to things rather than other people. I mean, that's a beautiful way to try to construct a world. And I'm very, very pleased that David is the vice president of Bolivia and I know that he will be alongside uh, Luis Arce and, and all the people there, including Patricia Arce, who was such a brave person, was beaten during the coup and looked directly in the camera as they cut her hair, put red paint on her face, threw gasoline over her. She looked directly at a camera and said, we are not afraid. And she has just been uh, sworn in as a senator uh, in the Senate in Bolivia. What a brave person Patricia is. So. These are the people, in a sense, Ayana, who are going to construct with us the future. These are the kinds of people, this is the caliber of person in the movements around the world. You know, these are sensitive people. These are people who believe we have great faith in the capacity of other people. They're not afraid of people. You know, you've got to listen more. You've got to build projects in unity with other people, whether it be in Bolivia, as, as we see here, uh, or it's in you know places where, uh, like in South Africa and Durban, where Abaklali based Majondolo, the shack dwellers movement, you know, has incredible resilience. You know, mostly these women who built um, networks, political networks of Abaklali uh, inside the neighborhoods of the poor in Durban, but other parts of South Africa as well, which stood attacks and murder by, you know, property developers and so on to give themselves dignity. 
you know, if you go to Colombia in the, the northern part of South America, where social movement leaders are being killed almost one a day, you know, at that rate, nonetheless, people still stand up unafraid, stand up to the kind of mafia state that's led by Ivan Duque. Um, these are brave people. I mean, you know, it, it breaks my heart every time I hear the name of somebody who's been killed because they are trying to create a sensitive world. Uh, it breaks my heart. I mean, it's a very sad thing that these people, what is their crime? You know, back to that old thing, right? Remember, uh, we, we know the punishment, we're getting killed, but what is our crime? My crime is I'm sensitive and want to create an end to hunger. You know, that's my crime. And for that, you killed me. Why did they kill Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso in 1987? Well, Thomas wanted to create diversified food regimes. Uh, he said on every Wednesday, he said, we forbid women to work in the kitchen. We forbid women to do any housework, any childcare, anything on every Wednesday. Because men must get a taste of um, reproductive labor. You know, you must see what it is. And if you see what it is, you'll start to enjoy it. And then you can truly share with the women in the household uh, the practice of reproductive labor. What a far-sighted, intelligent way to go. You know, instead of um, just talking, talking, talking about uh, the need for men to involve themselves, he said, we're going to pass a law. Like it or not, guys, you got to just go and try it. Try the kitchen. Try the laundry. Try taking care of your children. You'll find something beautiful in it. Initially, you're terrified of it. You think it's women's work. You think, oh, I can't do it. You'll, you'll find beauty in it. You'll be like that child who eventually jumps in the pool and doesn't want to get out. You'll say, wow, I really do enjoy cooking. I feel less alienated you know, when I do this, when I see the happy faces of my family, when they eat what I've cooked. Uh, but he had to be killed. They killed him. You know, Sensitive person. What was his crime? His crime was, he said, I want to make a better world. I want to make a better world. In our world, apparently, that's illegal. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Jonathan Yance, Nathan Keck, Lisabeth Russo, and C.D. Torre. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Melanie Younger, 